In May, a leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision indicated that the court might soon overturn 50 years of legal precedent and strike down Roe v. Wade, the 1973 ruling that found there is a constitutional right to abortion. Dozens of states are poised to outlaw or dramatically restrict abortion if Roe is overturned. While the court has yet to issue a final ruling, we're going to talk today about one aspect of what a post-Roe future would look like. What could happen to the mental health and well-being of people who are no longer able to access abortion? Abortion opponents have long argued that the procedure harms women's mental health and that it leads to depression, anxiety, regret, and even post-traumatic stress disorder. But years of research have failed to find that abortion itself causes these outcomes. So how does obtaining an abortion or being denied one affect mental health and well-being? What are the effects of laws that limit access to abortion, such as those that mandate waiting periods or pre-abortion counseling? And how might new laws that outlaw abortion affect people, even in parts of the country where abortion remains legal? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. Our guest today is Dr. Antonia Biggs, a social psychologist and associate professor at the Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health program at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Biggs studies the mental health effects of abortion. She led the mental health analysis for the Turnaway Study, a nationwide examination of the health and well-being of women who seek abortions. She also researches the challenges people face when accessing sexual and reproductive health services, as well as public attitudes toward abortion, particularly medication-induced abortion. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Biggs. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, so excited to be here. As I mentioned a moment ago, abortion opponents often argue that abortion is in itself bad for people's mental health and can lead to many negative mental health outcomes. The Turnaway study on which you worked addressed this question directly. Would you start by telling us about that study, how it was conducted, and what it found? Sure. So the Turnaway study is a a national study that was led by my colleague, Dr. Diana Green-Foster at UCSF. And um, in this study, um, the the impetus impetus behind the study really really came from this idea that um, abortion... Um, harms women's mental health. This is something that um, Justice Kennedy had stated um, in a in the Gonzalez versus Carhartt case, where he um, literally said that we don't have reliable reliable data to measure the phenomena, but that it seems unexceptional to conclude that some women are com- come to regret their abortion, um, and that severe depression and low self esteem is going to follow. So this is an assumption that was has been integrated in a lot of the state-level restrictions on abortion, yet he clearly states that we don't have reliable data. So the Turnaway study uh, really aimed to provide that reliable data. So it's one of the more most rigorous studies that we have um, studying that question. So we recruited nearly a 1,000 women and followed them for five years, and we compared people who had an abortion to people who were denied an abortion because they were just above a facility, facility's gestational age limit. Um, and, and we recruited people across the U.S. and we were really able to 
assess whether the people who had an abortion were at increased risk of having um, negative mental health outcomes when compared to the people who were denied an abortion. And what we found is that um, that this assumption is wrong, that we found that people who had an abortion were at no, they were not at an increased risk of experiencing um, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so we looked at all of those outcomes and we did not find an increased risk among the women who had an abortion. But what we did find is that the women who were denied an abortion did have short-term elevated levels of stress, anxiety, low life satisfaction, and low self-esteem when compared to the women who were able to get their wanted abortion. So um, in fact, we found the opposite of what people were assuming. Um, and then the other thing we found is that women, most women do not regret their abortion. Actually, we found that nearly 99% of women, when we follow them for over five years, say that the abortion was the right decision for them. Okay, so you're a psychologist and you focused on the mental health outcomes in the analyses of the turnaway data. But the study also looked at other outcomes like physical health and the economic effects of getting or being denied an abortion. What were some of the highlights of those findings? Um, yeah, so what we found when we look at all the other um, outcomes that we looked at, we found that the people who were denying abortion were much more likely to experience economic hardship and economic insecurity um, that lasted for years. Um, this impacted the financial well-being of of the people who were denying abortion, as well as their children and families. So they were much more likely to live in poverty. Um, we also found that people who um, uh, were had had were experiencing intimate partner violence were significantly more likely to be tethered to those partners over years. Um, the people who were um, denying abortion were more likely to stay in contact with those violent partners than the people who were able to get their their abortions. And then from a, a physical health perspective, we also, um, we know that abortion is much safer than childbirth. Um, and in the Turnaway study, we found um, that people who were uh, were denied an abortion and carried those pregnancies to term were much more likely to experience hypertension, chronic pain. They had a greater likelihood of poor health compared to those who have received an abortion. And then most tragically, we actually had two people who um, died in childbirth the of the women who denied who were denied abortion. And that was that's really an astronomical number when you think of the number of people that we included in this study. Um, and nobody who had an abortion died. Um, so, um, so we found, you know, very severe uh, uh, consequences to their physical health. What are the biggest challenges of doing this type of research? Was it hard to collect the sample? Was it difficult to structure the questions in a way that would get you what you needed? Tell us about that. Well, I think that um, one of the reasons why we haven't had good data up until the turnaway study is because um, of the challenges conducting this kind of research. So you can't randomize people to an abortion group or a not abortion group 
ethically for obvious reasons. And so that has led to a lot of correlational studies that don't con- that don't take into account some of um, some important factors that could predispose people to negative mental health outcomes. So what was unique about this study is that my colleague, Dr. Diana Green Foster, was brave enough to do the study that nobody thought she could do, which is to interview people who are denied an abortion at the time of being denied an abortion. So, um, so I, you know, people didn't think that she could do it, but she did with the help of, um, amazing clinics who, who helped with the recruitment. Um, it was the, the idea was spawned, um, by a colleague of mine who's a clinician, um, Dr. Eleanor Dre, who knew that women were being turned away and wanted, was wanting to know what what happens to those people? So that prompted the the, the study design, and um, and it was a tremendous amount of work to, um, involved uh, all the clinics who helped to recruit, and then we followed people for five years, interviewing them every six months. So eleven waves of interviews. So it was a huge, tremendous um, amount of work and um, involved a multidisciplinary team of experts, um, clinicians, demographers, epidemiologists. So, um, which is what, which is one of the strengths of the study, um, but, but also um, a challenging study to, to conduct. What what were the the limitations? I mean, if you could, could have done, you know, the, an ideal study with no limitations, what would it have looked like compared to what what you had to do so every study has its limitations um i think um in terms of this this particular study design i think it's it's one of the best it sort of takes advantage of a quasi-experimental design um one of the limitations is that more people did participate um so our participation, you know, you ideally you want everyone to participate, but of course that's never going to be uh, possible. So I'm not sure what we would have done differently other than um, in terms of getting more people to, to participate. Um, I think in retrospect, we would have, we, um, you know, there's probably like tweaks that we would have done to our survey instrument. Um, but in Overall, I think it's it's a study that we're all very proud of. There's another idea that's often cited by abortion opponents that many women come to regret having had an abortion. What does the research say about abortion and regret? So the research says that, well, the turnaway study research says that most people do not regret their abortions. Um, 99% of women say that the abortion was the right decision for them. And this continues over five years. We also, um, have research from other studies, um, uh, that have looked at, uh, women. So I, I, my colleague, um, Dr. Katrina Kimport has done interviews with people who said that they had emotional really specifically trying to find people who may have regretted their abortions. And it was very hard to find those people. But when she did, she conducted, um, I think, 17 interviews. 
And what she found was that it wasn't that people were regretting the abortion itself. It was that people were regretting the circumstances around the abortion. So this is there's something that we call decisional regret versus situational regret, which is a uh, a term that uh, a colleague of mine, um, Katie Watson, um, wrote a paper about. And the idea is... In, in the case of abortion, is that you wish you weren't in that circumstance that led you to need an abortion. You wish that maybe your partner reacted differently and was more supportive, or you wish that you had uh, better financial circumstances, or you were, um, you know, you were more stable housing. There's, there's situations in your life that you wish were different so that you could have that, carry that pregnancy to term. And so there's regret about that. Um, and really it's very rare that people are regretting that they actually had the abortion once they had no other option. Now you've also done research into the reasons why women seek abortions. What are some of the most common reasons and do they, do they differ from what most people think? Um, well, women have reasons, have abortions for many reasons. Um, often there's, more than one reason for them choosing to have an abortion. But I, I don't know that they differ from why people think I, people, um, the most common reason is financial reasons, economic reasons, not being in the right, um, having the right financial circumstances to raise a child. Um, many women um, are concerned about their existing children and want to, pro- you know, they want to provide a better life than they think they can provide for that child at the time. Um some choose to have an abortion due to partner-related reasons. They're not with their, the right partner. Um, and, uh, yeah, lots of different reasons. Have, have those reasons changed over time? They tend to be the same reasons that people people, people um, that if any reason why it might not be a good time to have a, a carrier pregnancy to term tends to be the reason why people have an abortion, and that hasn't really changed over time. Um, what has the availability of medication-induced abortion done to change the, the landscape out there? Are we seeing more women accessing that type of uh, treatment as opposed to uh, surgical abortion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen a tremendous growth in the provision of medication abortion. Now it's over half of people, uh, half of abortions are medication abortions, and it used to be much lower. I think that in part that has to do with um, the now we have um, telemedicine provision of medication abortions. So particularly during the pandemic, um, telemedicine became uh, available in the case of medication abortion, so more people are be able to able to access it. Uh, people prefer, in some cases, people prefer medication abortion because it feels more natural or more private. Um, they, they would prefer to, um, carry, you know, to, to pass the pregnancy, be be at home at the time. So, um, but then there's, of course, people who prefer, uh, an in-clinic procedure as well. How much do we know about the children who were born to women who had wanted to have an abortion but were unable to obtain one? What happens to them? And are most of them adopted? Do mothers tend to keep them? Or is this just an area that needs more study? 
Well, in the Turnaway study, we looked at the people who were denied an abortion um, and carried those pregnancies to term, and we looked at the, uh, the, you know, the the outcomes of those children. So they were significantly more likely to live in poverty, as I had mentioned before. Very few placed their their those children up for adoption. That was a very uncommon scenario. So this idea that has been purported that um, adoption is going to to um, take the place of access to abortion is not evidence-based. We know that that is very unlikely to happen. Um, we also saw um, very sadly and tragically that the uh, that the people who were denied an abortion carried those pregnancy to term were less likely to bond with that child. So we looked at indicators of maternal bonding, and that was lower. And we um, also saw that um, that the existing children were less likely to reach those developmental classic uh, developmental milestones that um, uh, that are measured, and, and they weren't quite reaching the same uh, milestone. So the impacts for the children are are very real. She talked about existing children, meaning that a lot of these women already had children and the, the children that they had were also affected by the outcome, the fact that the woman couldn't get an abortion. That's right. Yeah. So the, the entire families are affected, including the ones who were already uh, in, in the household. And um, that is one of the very, uh, one of the important reasons why people want an abortion too, is that they're thinking about their other children and and families. Many states already have laws mandating that people undergo a waiting period or counseling before they can have an abortion. How do those kinds of requirements affect women's access to abortion? And then how do they affect the women's mental health afterward? Yeah, well, it's really interesting that these um, these mandated waiting period and mandated counseling laws are passed with this idea that they're going to protect women from harm, protect them from physical harm and mental health harm. Um, in Texas, one of the women are required to receive this a booklet that warns them of an increased risk of becoming suicidal, and these. The idea that they're going to protect people's mental health is definitely not based in evidence. And we see that, um, as I just shared, it's it's very much quite the opposite. But, but what's really, really hard to stomach with these laws is that they're not thinking about what kind of mental health risk are they. So they're saying they're protecting people from mental health harm, but they may also be increasing mental health harm. And um, we did some some work where we uh, looked at what are the people who had to overcome burdens accessing care and what those associations were with mental health symptoms. And we found that people who had to overcome barriers accessing care, so traveling far, who had trouble finding a clinic um, and and other obstacles, they were more likely to experience symptoms of stress anxiety and depression than people who didn't have to overcome those obstacles. And the other thing that we found is that lack of autonomy. So being forced to wait 
which is what is required in a mandated waiting period law. Um, being forced to wait after you've made a decision is also associated with more stress, anxiety, and depression. So these laws are harmful to people's mental health and, um, and do the opposite of what they claim to do. Now, you've studied the role that stigma plays in how women experience abortion and how they feel about it afterward. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, so we, um, in the Turnaway study, we looked at people, um, we asked people whether they felt that their community or people close to them would look down on them if they knew they had an abortion, and the vast majority said that they did. So perceived abortion stigma was pervasive. Um, and then when we looked to see those who experienced perceived abortion stigma and their mental health outcomes years later, we found that those with who perceived more stigma um, were significantly more likely to experience psychological distress um, in the in the five years after having sought or been denied an abortion. And I would think that that would be part of the reason that it's so hard to get the sample, right? I mean, just the, the stigma associated with getting the abortion is, is it was hard enough going to get the abortion, right? And And now a researcher wants to talk to you about how you feel. That's got to be tough. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, we found that many people actually sh enjoyed sharing their stories because this this might be the, the, the interviewer may be the only person that they could share their stories with due to stigma. So for some people, I think that it was a, a good reprieve to be able to be with people who aren't going to judge you about your abortion and actually be interested in your experience. Um, and then in other cases, you know, we would ask them so many questions about the abortion. And then, and we, you know, we heard from the interviewers that they said they never thought about their abortion until we, you know, picked up the phone and called them. Um, because it's something that they sort of had moved up, moved on and weren't really thinking about it. If Roe is overturned, what kinds of effects do do you anticipate we're going to see on women who live in parts of the country where abortion remains legal? And, and what about where it's illegal? I mean, you know, we've already got a mental health crisis in this country. Um, what do you believe? And, and maybe this is unfair because you haven't done the research yet. But I mean, what, what would you anticipate as a researcher would be the outcome? Well, we, um, we, you know, we expect if Roe is overturned, we expect that half the country is going to lose access to abortion, um, which is which we, which means that more women are going to need to travel out of state to get an abortion, um, or that more women are going to choose to self-manage their abortion, so have uh, have an abortion on their own without. Uh, clinical assistance. This may be something that is uh, is likely to be much safer than in pre-row years. In that, in that people, many people will have access to medication abortion, but some may not. I mean, some may choose to use physical methods. Um, and then the other outcome is that more people are going to carry to term, which we already know is riskier um, physically and. Um, and, and it can lead to a host of negative outcomes, as we found in the Turnaway study. Um, I worry about um, the lack of bodily autonomy that this decision means for people. 
Um, it means that they are being denied a right to exercise their own bodily autonomy and being forced to travel or forced to carry to term or forced to, uh, to end the pregnancy on their own um, when they may want, prefer to have clinical assistance. Um, so I think this is going to push people later in pregnancy. Um, it's going to force more travel and it's going to um, negatively impact in particular people who have fewer resources, whether that's financial resources or um, emotional resources. Um, and I also worry about people being criminalized. People who self-manage their abortions are at risk of being criminalized. And then we know that certain groups of people are more likely to be targeted by the criminal justice system. Um, and so there are a lot of things that I worry about. I also think that maybe this is going to have um, an in, you know increased abortion stigma. So I think if abortion is illegal, does that mean that more people are going to think that being against abortion is, I don't know, or more people, our attitudes about abortion, or could those change? And will um, people be judged more for seeking abortion? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Those are things I don't know. So what are the biggest questions you think researchers still need to answer about abortion and mental health? So we know that for most people, the population level abortion, it doesn't increase people's risk for mental health harm, but there's some people who may need support. But what we know very little about is what is the impact of all of these, um, this structural stigma and these laws and these increased barriers and all the um, obstacles that people need to overcome. I feel like we need more work to understand how that might negatively impact people. Um, there's some qualitative work that shows that overcoming these barriers can be very traumatic. Um, and um, I think that's something that, that I would want to understand who's more affected from a mental health perspective. Well, Dr. Biggs, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology@apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.